thanks for listening to Season 2 of the Matt Lubu Podcast. For this season, I'll be posting supplementary materials on my website, mattlupu.com. There, you can find maps, photos, and more to go along with each episode. Check out the entry for this episode. It's up right now. Once again, you can find it all at mattlupu.com. And now, on to the show. Last time, we talked about the early origins of the Rus people from the various tribes who lived in and around the rivers of Eastern Europe. This time, I want to explore the first contacts between the Rus and the Roman Empire, or what was left of it. If you'll recall, we discussed in broad terms the state of the Roman Empire at around the time of the origins of the Rus people. To recap that conversation briefly, The fall of the western half of the Roman Empire is traditionally dated to the expulsion of the last western Roman emperor in 476 AD. The eastern half of the Roman Empire would survive, albeit in much reduced circumstances from that time to 1453 AD. What that means for us is that the Roman Empire was alive and well at around the time the Rus state begins to coalesce. A note on terminology here. I prefer to use the term Eastern Roman Empire rather than the more common Byzantine Empire, since the Romans living under the emperor in the East never saw themselves as anything other than Roman. The term Byzantine is one that only developed in the centuries after the last emperor in Constantinople had been deposed. In fact, the term Roman would be the preferred one for Greek speakers living in the Greek peninsula as well as Anatolia up until the 19th century. Now, all of that said, sometimes I might slip up and use the term Byzantine. For our purposes here, just understand that they are equivalent. When I say Byzantine, or when I say Eastern Roman, I'm referring to the government in operation in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. As you might imagine, the Romans living at the time that we're talking about were highly literate, just as their more ancient counterparts were. And, if you'll recall, we've already had some contact with the Eastern Roman sources in this series. If you're anything like me, you probably don't have a good sense of the challenges facing the Romans in the centuries after the rise of Islam. It's not like they teach this stuff in high school. At any rate, the Romans found themselves surrounded by hostile peoples, all of whom were eager to take territory from them. After the initial spasm of Arab conquest which stripped the Romans of Egypt and the Levantine coast, historically the wealthiest parts of the empire, troops were moved from the Balkans and Danube frontier to deal with the Arab threat, a threat that proved to be an existential one. Arab armies laid siege to the capital of Constantinople on three separate occasions, from the 6th through the 8th centuries. With the acute loss of manpower and reshuffling of troops came incursions from the Danube deep into the Greek peninsula at the hands of another Slavic tribe, this one called the Bulgars. 
Essentially, the Romans were caught between a rock and a hard place. It seems that in their initial foray into Roman territory, the Bulgars were largely disorganized, which, ironically enough, made it even more difficult to defeat them, since there was no political organization to defeat and treat with afterwards. Essentially, the task of fighting the Bulgars meant defeating small independent groups of fighters one at a time in heavily forested and sparsely populated parts of the empire. This task proved to be quite impossible for the Romans. I should mention here that the emergence of the Bulgar state bears a striking resemblance to the processes we've already discussed in the context of the Rus and the Khazars. That is to say, that the Bulgars were ruled by a small military elite of Turkic peoples who dominated a heterogeneous population of Slavs and other tribes. At the time of the first hostile contact between the Rus and the Romans, the Bulgars had formed into a great medieval power, led by their king, Boris I. Their kingdom extended to the borders of the Holy Roman Empire in the west, the Carpathian Mountains in the north, the Black Sea in the east, and the Roman Empire in the south. Their location as a buffer state between Christian lands in the east and west gave them a particular advantage diplomatically. You see, at this time, the Holy Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire found themselves in a bit of an intractable position, known to modern scholars as the problem of two emperors. You might have picked up on the weird nomenclature that I'm throwing around in this episode. I keep on referring to two different empires with slightly different names, the Holy Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. We've covered the Eastern Roman Empire, so what's the deal with the Holy Roman Empire? I'm so glad you asked. It's hard for us to put ourselves in the mindset of the early Middle Ages, if only because we've always been taught that when the Roman Empire collapsed as a coherent political organization, everyone alive at the time sort of agreed that it was over, and they were living in a new reality that wasn't concerned with emperors and togas. But that simply wasn't the case. The medieval mindset, from local kings to the Pope in Rome, were deeply concerned with the Roman legacy as the only source of political and religious legitimacy. That said, if you'll remember, when the so-called barbarian tribes invaded Roman territory in the 5th century, many of them were seeking a share of the Roman way of life. That situation would not really change over the course of the next two centuries. The Frankish and Gothic kings ruling over the former provinces in the West saw their positions as legitimate because the emperor in Constantinople had given them his blessing. In other words, they ruled with his consent. Now, in many ways, this nod from Constantinople was purely a formality, because, as much as the emperor in Constantinople might have dreamed of reincorporating the lost provinces of Italy and France into his empire, it was a military impossibility. The Eastern Roman Empire would never be wealthy or powerful enough to seriously entertain a reconquest of the lost western provinces after the reign of Justinian I in the 6th century. Regardless, there still existed some magic in the idea of Rome controlling all Christian lands everywhere, if not in fact, then at least on paper. Perhaps an example is in order. Beginning in the reign of Justinian I, and extending through the 8th century, any time a new pope in Rome was elected, 
he needed the Eastern Roman Emperor's approval before he could be officially consecrated as the Pope. As a result of this, most of the popes during this period of domination were Greek speakers from Greece, Sicily, or even Syria. Keep in mind that the practical implication of this system was a trip between Rome and Constantinople, which was particularly fraught in the 7th and 8th centuries. You see, the days of relatively easy travel around the Mediterranean had long since ended with the incursion of the Slav tribes into the Balkans. Back in Roman times, one could travel from Rome via the Appian Way to the port city of Brindisium, and then take a short sea voyage from there to Dyrrhachium in Greece. From Dyrrhachium, it was a straight shot on a well-maintained road, the Via Ignatia, to Constantinople. That route was well and truly impossible in the 7th century AD. The upshot of all of this was that the selection of a pope in Rome could take years to be ratified by the emperor in the east. That delay was only one source of potential conflict between east and west. In the aftermath of the Arab conquests, a new religious theory began to gain popularity in the Eastern Roman Empire. Muslim religious leaders charged the Romans with following an obsolete religion in the wake of the Prophet Muhammad. They could point to their military and political success as proof of their divinely favored status. One of the key differences between Islam and Christianity at the time was the strict prohibition in Islam of icons. In the Islamic world, the worship of Christian icons, those are the depiction of saints and even Jesus himself in churches, was viewed as a form of idolatry. The argument proved to be popular in the Eastern Roman Empire, and thus the iconoclast movement was born. The argument went something like this. Perhaps the Muslims are right in criticizing the use of icons in religious practice. If they are, it would explain the loss of Roman territory to them via divine disfavor. If we destroy or otherwise prohibit the use of icons in religious practice, including their display in churches, then we might regain divine favor. Now, as you might imagine, this led to incredible strife both inside and outside of the empire. If the Eastern Emperor is in charge, at least on paper, of all Christians everywhere, then what are we to do when we perceive him to make a heretical choice? This very scenario arose under Emperor Leo the Isaurian in 726 AD. He ordered a purge of icons in all land controlled by the Romans, including their outposts in Italy. Those Italian people living under Eastern Roman control responded by lynching the imperial emissary known as the Exarch. Furthermore, the Pope declared iconoclasm as heresy. Soon after this, the Popes would stop seeking their legitimacy from the Eastern Emperor. In fact, Pope Zachary was the last one to seek Eastern ratification in 741 AD. The situation between East and West would only deteriorate from here. In 800 AD, the final blow was struck, which began another two centuries of estrangement between East and West. In the East, the emperor had been violently deposed, and his regent, a woman named Irene, became the de facto ruler of the Roman Empire. Since we can all agree that girls got cooties, the Pope responded by crowning his own emperor in the Frankish lands to the north, 
thus officially turning his back on the Roman emperor in the East. From that point on, East and West would enter into an adversarial relationship, each one in turn claiming to be the true successor of the Roman Empire, and the source of political and religious legitimacy for all of Christendom. That is the situation we find ourselves in when the Rus make their first contact with Constantinople. There's ample reason for both the Holy Roman and Eastern Roman empires to want to convert the Slavs to their own version of Christianity. Remember that the Bulgars are largely Slavs, and whichever way they go, if they were to convert in mass to Christianity, will have a direct effect on the rest of the Slavs in the region, since their languages are probably mutually intelligible, and there's reason to believe that they would have been in contact with each other via trade and or military alliance. While the Slavs in Bulgaria were being courted by both Eastern and Western empires, the Rus, for some reason, decided to launch a raid on the capital of Constantinople. The first source to describe this raid is from the anonymous life of St. George of Amastris. That work has never been definitively dated, but it most likely describes the Rus' raid of 860 AD. Another source is the Rus' primary chronicle. We also have mention of it in a sermon written by the Patriarch of Constantinople, Photius. Let's take these sources in order. Here's what the life of George says about the raid. There was an invasion of the barbarian Rus, a people, as everyone knows, who are brutal and crude and bear no remnant of love for humankind. They have savage customs and are inhuman in their deeds, displaying bloodthirstiness in their very appearance. They rejoice in slaughter more than in any other thing that people naturally enjoy. This nation, destructive both in deed and name, began their brutal outrage from the Propontis, and then spread up the coast. They came as far as the native city of the saint and cut down unsparingly people of both sexes and every generation. They did not pity the old or overlook the young, but rather raised their bloodthirsty hands equally against all and hastened to bring destruction with as much force as possible. Knocking over churches and desecrating relics, they set up ungodly altars in their place and performed unlawful libations and sacrifices. They renewed that ancient Tauric slaying of strangers, the slaughter of youth, men as well as women. No one provided aid. No one stood against them. Even meadows and springs and trees feared them. Perhaps divine providence allowed this so that evil would be multiplied, something that happened many times to Israel, as we have learned from Scripture. The Rus' version from the primary chronicle, as you might imagine, is slightly less defamatory. Here's what it has to say. Askold and Deer attacked the Greeks during the 14th year of the reign of the Emperor Michael, when the Emperor had set forth against the infidels, those are the Muslims, and had arrived at the Black River. The Eparch sent him word that the Rus were approaching Sargrad, that's Constantinople, and the Emperor turned back. Upon arriving inside the strait, the Rus made a great massacre of the Christians, and attacked Sargrad in 200 boats. The emperor succeeded with difficulty in entering the city. He straightway hastened with the patriarch Photius 
to the church of Our Lady of the Blockernai, where they prayed all night. They also sang hymns and carried the sacred vestments of the Virgin to dip it in the sea. The weather was still, and the sea was calm. But a storm of wind came up, and when great waves straightway rose, confusing the boats of the godless Rus, it threw them upon the shore and broke them up, so that few escaped such destruction and returned to their native land. What we can gather from these stories is that sometime in the summer of 860, a fleet of up to 200 Rus ships arrived from the Black Sea and sailed into the Bosphorus. It just so happened that the emperor at the time, Michael III, was on campaign against the Arabs, and the city was nearly completely defenseless. The Rus raided and pillaged suburbs of the capital before sailing into the Sea of Marmara, where they continued raiding and pillaging the islands off the coast there. We don't really know what caused them to break off the raid. I like to think that eventually the Rus got bored and left. However, there are a variety of later traditions. Many of them have the city saved by divine or otherwise supernatural intervention, while other sources maintain that the emperor heard news of the raid and put his Arab campaign on hold to deal with the Rus. Whatever the cause, the Rus would not return to Constantinople for another 50 years. So what? Why do we care about any of this? At some point, either just before or just after the Rus' raid, the Bulgar king, Boris I, made his decision to adopt Eastern Christianity for his kingdom. His decision was motivated by a few political factors. Firstly, Boris was being courted by Rome to convert his kingdom to Western Christianity, which presented an unacceptable risk to the Eastern Romans. They, in turn, attacked the Bulgars, who suffered a series of military defeats. The Romans would only agree to peace if the Bulgars converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, recognizing the Patriarch and the Emperor as the authorities in all religious affairs. But that doesn't explain why Boris was interested in converting in the first place. That decision seems to have been born from a desire to unite the Slavs under one religion. Another group of Slavs to the north of Bulgar land had forged an alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor, but later wanted to demonstrate their independence from him. For the Slavs of Greater Moravia, living in the region of modern Hungary, there was no better declaration of independence from the Holy Roman Emperor than converting to Eastern Christianity. Boris, knowing that an Eastern-aligned neighbor to his north would leave his kingdom even more isolated from the rest of the Christian world than it was now, and also conceding that his current kingdom contained sizable areas where Christianity was already being practiced as a minority religion, decided that he would throw in his lot with the Eastern Romans, and converted. In the wave of mass baptism that followed, it is probable that a number of Rus also decided to adopt Eastern Christianity as well. This all roughly coincided with a mission sent by the Emperor and Patriarch at the request of Prince Radislav of Greater Moravia to help convert his kingdom and establish a church hierarchy in communion with Constantinople. This all roughly coincided with a mission sent by the Emperor and Patriarch at the request of Prince Rostislav of Greater Moravia to help convert his kingdom and establish a church hierarchy in communion with Constantinople. Rostislav, 
previous to this request, had expelled a similar mission sent by Rome, which tells us his decision to align with Constantinople was a conscious and calculated political move. It was not an expression of Christian piety, nor was it an introduction of Christianity to a population that had never heard of it before. The mission consisted of two brothers, Cyril and Methodius. They were both born in the Greek province of Thessalonica. It remains unknown and controversial as to whether they were ethnically Greek or Slav, or perhaps a mix of the two. Regardless, the brothers evidently spoke both Greek and the Slavic language. Upon answering the call of the patriarch and the emperor, the brothers assembled a team of bilingual assistants and began the enormous challenge of translating the scriptures into the Slavic language. To do that, they would need to invent a custom alphabet to accommodate the unique sounds present in the Slavic language that were otherwise absent in Greek. This alphabet would be known as the Glagolitic alphabet. It was based on Greek, but had several additions to suit the needs of Slavic speakers, similar to the Coptic alphabet in Egypt. For example, Greek has no way to make an SH or SH sound, but that is a very common sound in Slavic. To solve that problem, Cyril and Methodius selected the Hebrew letter SHIN, which makes a SH sound, and adapted it into their new alphabet. Today, that letter is known as Sha in modern Cyrillic alphabets. Incidentally, the name Cyrillic, in reference to the alphabet used to express modern Ukrainian, Russian, Bulgarian, Serbian, and other languages that were spoken in and around the Soviet Union, comes from the name of Saint Cyril, who was later canonized as a saint in the Slavic Orthodox Church. At any rate, these two brothers, Cyril and Methodius, came to Greater Moravia in 863 AD and founded a literary school there for the purpose of copying and disseminating their translation of the scriptures. This ended up causing quite a stir in the rest of the Christian world since the other missionaries from the Holy Roman Empire were still active in Greater Moravia when Cyril and Methodius first arrived. Naturally, friction arose between the two camps. The brothers, after getting into conflict with rival Western missionaries, made a journey to Rome, seeking the support of the Pope there. Upon their arrival, the Pope decided that he could use the brothers to further gain control over the Slavs. This tactic sort of worked. The Pope made the brothers and several of their followers officials in the Western Church with responsibilities over the land of what is now Serbia and Moravia and gave them the ability to use their newly created Slavic liturgy in all church services. Cyril would die soon after this permission was granted, but Methodius would continue his work spreading Christianity among the Slavs. For the rest of his life, Methodius would strenuously advocate for the use of the Slavic language for performing the liturgy despite the objections of other church officials in neighboring lands that favored only the use of Latin and Greek. There would be various revolutions when it came to the use of the Slavic liturgy. Whenever and wherever Holy Roman Church officials came into power over the Slavs, they would banish Slavic-speaking officials and stop using Slavic as a church language. These refugees would subsequently find shelter in the kingdom of Boris I after his conversion to Christianity. 
The most famous example of this dynamic came soon after the death of Methodius in 885 AD, when the Bishop Wiching came to power in the land that is now known as Slovakia, which at the time was part of Greater Moravia. He exiled all the disciples of Methodius and Cyril, who fled to the kingdom of Boris I in Bulgaria. It was in the Bulgarian Empire that these disciples would devise the Cyrillic alphabet using Cyril's glagolitic as its basis. It should come as no surprise, then, that with the advent of Boris's conversion and the influx of Cyril's disciples into his empire, that the Bulgars would soon become the most literate and influential members of the greater Slavic world. It would be from the Bulgar Empire that literacy and Slavic Christianity would eventually filter its way into the lands of the Rus. Well, that, and also the returning raiders from that first adventure against Constantinople, with their tales of an impossibly large city and wealth beyond imagining. But that is a story for a future episode. Thanks for listening.